greetings in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus, the one who was preached on at Pentecost. And it is a small group this morning. I know there are some that are staying away because of the because they have been exposed to the virus and there's some that may have some fevers. I heard of that. John John and Beverly, John was asked to go to Harmony to preach because Ken Ken Hirsch was exposed to the virus the same way that Bobby was. So that's where he is at this morning, where they're at. And some of you were brave enough to come out, so thank you for being here. Good to see you. And good to hear what we did this morning about marriage. Um, don't see you right now. I don't know where Matt is at the moment, but um, he's had a few years of experience, and it's a continuation. So here we are at, a, at the main part of the service, and uh, I will be going through Second Corinthians like we were before. So you can turn there. It's interesting, you can have topical messages, you can have uh, various different kinds of messages, and I don't think I ever heard a topical message on this portion of scripture that I had this morning, except maybe the last verse. Probably the last verse is the most quoted one in this section. But... uh the last message I had was titled, Paul Explains His Absence. And there we had the situation between Paul and the church where it was fragile. Uh, the church had been, seemed to be, almost had been swayed to go another direction. And Paul, through various things there, had actually brought the thing back. Titus had come back with word that things were a much better place. And so there was a lot of joy in this, in that response. And I had spent the bulk of that message to explaining that the church did not understand a lot of what Paul, why didn't Paul come to visit them when they expected? And then we spent quite a bit of time that that is often what happens when we don't see the whole picture. We only see part of it and someone else sees a part of it. And depending on your attitude toward the person, you come up with a very different perspectives on what is going on. And so we studied that last time some. We take our distorted facts and we promote them as a reality. And we said there's usually two sides to a story. At least two. <laughs> and then there's the truth. But also mentioned that doesn't mean that every side of the story is equally tr true or equally off or equally wrong. There's sometimes, many times, that there's one side closer to another. And then we also saw that Paul was not a helicopter pastor. He gave them some space, not to do evil, but he gave them some space to respond. When he gave them direction, he gave them time. To respond. And he would then, depending on their response, then he would have another response. But he did not 
micromanage them. <clears throat> but it does not still allow them to stray. So the text today in Second Corinthians chapter 2 is a continuation of the narrative, the story. It has some repetition and yet it, it goes in a different direction. And so we'll read, uh, we'll read this passage and, um, it ends with a very unusual statement. And before I read it, I want to say the five, the five things that we see in this passage. It talks about a visit. It talks about a letter. It talks about a man. It talks about forgiveness. And it talks about the devil. Uh, those five things are all in here. And we'll go through that and then we'll end up. This doesn't sound right. We'll end up at the devil, right? No, it doesn't sound right. <laughs> Well, the title of the message is Be Aware of the Devil's Devices. And that's where we'll finally come out with a more practical area. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and we'll read to verse 11. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again unto you in heaviness, for if I make you sorry, who is then, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any hath caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I might not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrariwise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that ye might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything, forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Mark Twain was the one who made this statement that I searched up because I knew it was there. So I got the exact quote. He said in his vernacular, he said, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Now, what Mark was bothered by, I don't know. Whether was he was bothered by some of the things the Bible teaches or whether he was bothered by his own soul because of guilt, I'm not sure. But probably what I read right now, none of you are saying, I know exactly what that means and I have it figured out. In fact, some of you might be scratching your head and say, well, what what? What does that mean, what you just read? 
What, what are you, what is Paul talking? What, what's going on here? What does that mean? What does God want to us to understand from this portion of his word? So like I said, it's about a visit, it's about a letter, it's about a man, it's about forgiveness and about the devil. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read it to you again in the Phillips translation, which brings a little bit clarity, more, more clarity there, and then we'll go into, into there. And here I'll point out the five points in here. And I made up my mind that I would not pay you another painful visit. There we have a visit. For what point is there in my depressing the very people who can give me such joy? The real purpose of my previous letter, there we have a letter, was in fact to save myself from being saddened by those whom I might reasonably expect to bring me joy. I have such confidence in you that my joy depends on all of you. I wrote to you in deep distress and out of a most unhappy heart. We have their letter there too, wrote unto you. With tears, not, believe me, to cause you pain, but to show you how deep is my care for your welfare. There was a reason for my stern words. This is my advice now. If the behavior of a certain person has caused distress, now we have a man, a certain person has caused distress, it does not mean so much that he has injured me, but that to some extent, I do not wish to exaggerate, he has injured all of you. But now I think that the punishment of you Punishment you have afflicted on him has been sufficient. Now is the time to offer him forgiveness and comfort. There we have forgiveness. For it is possible for a man in his position to be completely overwhelmed by remorse. I ask you to show him plainly now that you love him. My previous letter, there again, was something of a test. I wanted to make sure that you would follow my orders implicitly. If you will forgive a certain person, rest assured that I forgive him too. Insofar as I had anything personally to forgive, I do forgive him as before Christ. We don't want Satan, here we have Satan, to win any victory here. And well, we know his methods. What I'll do now is I'm going to go over the, the scenario of what is happening here in this passage. And it's, it's an approximate scenario because we don't know exactly. We have to fill in a little bit of gaps. But we need to understand what's going on here. After 18 months at Corinth, Paul left. You're well aware of that. He left and he went across and in Ephesus, he gets a report from the house of Chloe that things are not going well at, at Corinth. And so he writes them a letter. His goal was to bring correction and rest to them at the church. And I like to ask the question, did it work? Yeah. But before it had its full effect, another problem surfaced. Another major problem surface. 
before this one was even fully resolved. And this is probably worse than the first problem. And it threatened the very continuance, the faithful continuance of this church. Uh, if you remember my first message, I had this pyramid of marbles on my arm. Before one issue was resolved, another one entered in, and it just seemed like this was uncertain, and that's what was happening here. It was outside teachers coming into the church and trying to take it over. And, and here's, a, here's sort of what happened. As, as Paul and the other apostles went to different churches and established churches, teachers or men that were teachers followed after them and these men described themselves as teachers of God. You had in um, in Galatians, you had the Judaizers. In um, in First John, he's he's clearly talking about um, what we would now call the Gnostics. In this situation, Paul calls them super apostles, tongue in cheek. These super apostles, they came in afterwards, and. And they tried to take over this church. And to do that, they had to unlatch Paul so they could bring in their message. And were they after power? Were they after money? At any rate, they were wanting to control the people. In fact, you have to know that because that's the main reason for Second Corinthians is this issue here. It's it's well we'll get into it later. It, there's not there's not a direct connection to the first letter. There's a number of things that have happened in between here. And to understand this letter we need to understand that. But there's something else we need to understand. Why did Paul go in such lengths to defend himself personally? You know, I thought of that for quite a while. You know, if someone attacks you, well, you turn the other cheek, right? You, you, you don't attack back in a sense. There's a right way and a wrong way to respond to attacks that come to you. But Paul hit back pretty hard. In fact, he went to the extent where he actually became, made himself a fool doing it. Why? Why so much? What are, there's one point here that I actually came across and recognized. We must remember that the church at this time does not have a New Testament. It doesn't have a Bible. It has the Old Testament. It does have that. It has the scriptures in the Old Testament. It has the Greek Septuagint, so it was readily available to everybody. But they did not have a New Testament. And so... You had the new covenant that was instituted by Jesus there in the upper room, but you had no scriptures connected to that new covenant. So what was the touchstone of truth to this church and the all the churches? Anybody know? What, how, how did people know what's right and what's wrong? It was the apostles were given the charge. The apostles were given the charge directly by the Lord Jesus to foundationally laid a church. Paul was one of them. They were charged by Jesus 
at the foundational builders of the church. Now, what does that mean here? Well, that means here that Paul was the revelation to the church. And he was their Bible, in quotes, because there was no New Testament, so he was their New Testament. His teaching was from God with the same authority that we would take the New Testament today. And that means that for others to come into the church and cast doubt on Paul and his authority would be the same as someone casting doubt on the scripture today. That's what it is. That's what's going on here. What would, what would we do if someone amongst us would circulate amongst us and say things like, well, the Bible is just simply an ancient religious book. Um, it has good ethics in it, but you can't believe the miracles. And the part about the men and women's roles, <laughs> um, creation, they just, or sexuality, they just reflect the culture that those men were in at that time. And science has now that we have science, we understand, we know better now. What would we do with someone, a teacher, that would come in and start teaching that? What would we do with that person? Would we defend the Bible? <clears throat> what if a church would be, an entire church would be persuaded by such a teacher to disbelieve the Bible in such a way? What if you would start a church, you were foundational in starting a church, okay, now we're going to start a church in Lebanon. And we have some people here who are foundational in starting that church, and then someone else comes in and, and begins to undermine the word of God and says all those things about roles. Yeah, we're all equal. That equality is really what we want, what God wants. What would you do? Well, that's what Paul faced. That's the situation Paul faced. By setting Paul aside, they were in fact setting aside the word of God, like in today's day, the Bible. And that'll help us understand a little bit why Paul did what he why Paul did what he did later on. To attack Paul is the same as attacking the Bible. And one of the primary reasons that Paul and his teachings are disdained today by some is that his writings are the old, only New Testament books that expressly forbid women to be in positions of authority and teach, and that specifically condemns homosexuality. And so he has been called a bunch of names that I don't want to name here. And that still follows him today. So what, what is happening here at Corinth is actually simply one of the earliest examples in the Christian church that we have an attack and a revolt in God's word, New Testament church, that is. So what happened there is what is happening today. <clears throat> and as Paul did... 
so we must do too. We must defend God's word against its enemies. And then we need to counteract and persuade people and churches not to follow those teachers. It's amazing how many times there's nothing new under the sun. Okay, let's go on and keep it. We're trying to reenact some of the things that are going on here. Paul, again, in the Phillips, he said, I have made up my mind that I would not pay you another painful visit. For what point is there in my depressing the very people who can give me such joy? The real purpose of my previous letter was, in fact, to save myself from being saddened by those who I might reasonably expect to bring me joy. So he writes about a painful visit and a previous letter. So when I, when I was starting this study in 1 Corinthians, I could not decide if there was an extra visit between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in the letter. I was quite certain there was an extra letter, but I wasn't sure about an extra visit. Based on this, I believe clearly there was an extra visit. After he wrote 1 Corinthians, after he got news that things were not going well with the other issue, he came for a short visit, probably to assess what was going on in the church. And it ended up, from all, in all I can understand, it was a brief visit, and it seemed not to have gone well. It, he, maybe he got a lot of resistance. I don't know exactly what happened, but he left grieved and saddened and brokenhearted. It was not a successful visit. It was a painful visit. It was seen to be painful to them, and it definitely was painful to Paul. Now, what happened during that visit? Well, I think that's where this man comes in at. Who is this man, and who are they to forgive? Now, I was taught, and the only time I would have heard this scripture, I believe, is just this man is generally viewed as, as the incestuous man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where this man was living with his father's wife, and they are told to bring discipline on that man, to put him outside the church. And, and so this is often viewed as that man. And doctrinally, it is consistent. But it does not account for this letter and does not account for this visit. And Paul speaks about him needing to forgive this man. And as far as we know, that other man had never injured Paul. And neither does it give any kind of bridge between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that this man, the way I'm, up, I'm going to present him, actually gives a bridge between the two. So I believe it's another man. And here is some conjecture. Here is some conjecture means, I don't know, theories, ideas, because we don't know exactly. But here's the possible scenario. After Paul heard about the church shifting away from him under the influence of these uh, false teachers, he came for a visit. While he was there, a man 
that was a member of the church publicly and probably quite quite aggressively opposed Paul. And what did the church do? Apparently not much. And then Paul left under those circumstances. And then I believe of when Paul wrote that letter that is not included in the scripture that is here called the painful letter. It's referred to in Second Corinthians chapter 7. Though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceived that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were for a season. He said, I wrote a letter, and after I sent it, I almost regretted sending it because it was such a sharp letter. And the outcome was anything but certain. And it seemed from all I know, Paul was really worried. If I would describe someone in that situation, I would think I could say Paul couldn't sleep. (laughs) He was really, really concerned. But he did not go back for another visit. He sends Titus to find out how they responded to the letter. And then I'm going to read, and you can turn now. We're going to read a long section there in Second Corinthians chapter 7. In Second Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to find out the response that he has gotten back from Titus after uh, Titus went, found out how they're doing, and then brought a report back to Paul. We're going to start at verse 5. 4. When we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Some of those fears were about this church. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforteth us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us, your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle or letter had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sword, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourself, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, Yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all these things you have approved yourself to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor his cause that had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceeding the more joyful we were we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. 
For if I have boasted anything of him to you, uh, of you, I am not ashamed. For as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found in truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, while he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. So Paul has confidence in them. Again, their wholehearted response, he regained that confidence in them. And it's in that confidence there, right there, in that confidence in them, in their response, it's in that confidence that he writes Second Corinthians. That's that, it's, it's that, uh, it's the environment which he writes this letter. This is not a painful letter anymore, but it's an, an, it's a environment of confidence in them because they have responded well to him. Okay, back to this man. Paul had instructed them in a letter, in his letter, that they must discipline this man for what he had done. It was Paul that had wrote that you don't rebuke an elder except under two or three witnesses, and then it must be substantiated. But like I said, it seemed like Paul had been unjustly condemned or opposed. And the church did. They responded to Paul's letter with genuine repentance. And they followed that repentance with action. They brought discipline on that man. And they did it thoroughly. This is what the scripture says. What carefulness it wrought in you. What clearing of yourself. Yea, what indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What revenge. When, when they finally came to recognizing it and they repented, they went the whole way. They did it right. Well, see, there was leaven in the church. Leaven is a metaphor for sin. And leaven, by its very nature, is something that grows. It has influence. It, it keeps on permeating. Leaven is that way. And sin is that way, too. And like leaven, if sin is present in part of the loaf, it will spread to the entire loaf. So that no, not, nobody is untouched by that sin in time. So, Christ church discipline involves everything necessary to keep a church pure before God. To keep it. Church discipline is to keep the church from getting permeated by false doctrine and by sin and anything that that's wrong. And church discipline is actually what well, discipline does not feel loving. But church discipline and in any kind of discipline that's done right is a very loving thing. And church discipline is a matter of love also. It's a love for God. It's a love for holiness. It's a love for truth. It's a love for Christ's testimony in the church. It's a love of the brethren. 
It's a love for the erring church member. And it's love for the unbelievers who are watching the testimony of the church. See, many churches today do not exercise discipline. And so sin and false doctrine goes unchecked, largely unchecked. And then the church is unholy. And it's not a testimony of righteousness to the world anymore. And so though discipline is hard, it's uncomfortable, it is much, much better than the alternative, which is a fallen church or a corrupt church. And so the church did bring discipline on this man, and it had its effect. What was the effect? The man repented. The man was truly sorry for what he had done. And he changed his actions and his attitudes as well. Now what? Well, here we come to forgiveness. It is time to forgive him and to receive him back. See, it took some time for the church to get with the program. They did not deal with it at first in a timely manner. But when they finally took action, they took it fully and they took it completely and they did it with the entire heart. Now, the human heart is, if you know your heart, some of our hearts are more that way. But the human heart generally is a, has a tendency to go to extremes. We are constituted, so constituted, especially conscientious people, that once we identify an error, we are, we feel we're ever coming closer to the truth the further we are from the error. So someone says, here's an error. Well, let's get as far away from it as we can. Then we are closest to the truth. What do you think of that um, method? We must never approach truth that way. Rather, we must recognize that the human heart is like a pendulum. At each end, it's not moving. And in the center, it's moving the fastest while it goes to the other side. And... And it's often the case that we're more comfortable with extremes. I don't know if you ever had, you have a magnet. We had those little doggy magnets when I was young. And you could put that one one doggy there and you're going towards it. You put them sideways and you come towards them with one of the ends of the other doggy. And, and you, you cannot come up to the middle. That thing will swing around to the one or to the other. You can't get it in the middle. And that's a little bit how we are. It's the old, there are two ditches on each side of the road. And it's easier to go in the ditch than it is to stay on the road. They, the Corinthian church, fell in both ditches in this passage. First, they were too slow to initiate discipline. Then once they did, they were too slow 
to extend restoration. And in doing so, they were making themselves vulnerable to one of the devil's schemes. And this is where the most, the, the most of the application will come in this area. What is one of the devil's schemes? It is going to extremes. It's one of his devices. It's one of the ways where he, he deceives God's people. And we'll, we'll talk about more about that. It's time to forgive him, lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. I remember reading that verse already. I said, we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, I don't know what that means. What devices is he talking about? Of course, the devil has a lot of devices. But we're going to look at one of them. Extremes are not godly. Now, this is hard to understand. Why is that? Because we are to love God with all of our heart and soul, mind and strength. There's, there's no holding back in our love for God. It's, it's, um, you take, to use some illustration, you take the bull by the horn. You mean you go all out in loving God. There's, there's no middle of the road. There's no lukewarmness. It's wholehearted. Zeal is not good. It is to be praised. Like a Phineas, when, uh, when idolatry and fornication was threatening the very nation of Israel, what did he do? He went and he saw that man and the woman go in the tent. He went in and he killed them both. And he was commended for it. He had zeal. Or Elijah, when those prophets of Baal, when he said, first he said, there's not going to be any rain till I, the word comes again. And then, Several years later, those prophets of Baal, you see that zeal, that wholeheartedness. And so, and so, um, we have that boldness, we have that zeal. And so, with that kind of thinking, we can actually take that and we can take it into some areas and go to extremes with that kind of thinking. Uh, Paul knew that better than anyone else, that zeal can be misguided, did he not? He was unparalleled in defending the Jewish system. And he was in a ditch. So the devil would want us to fall in a ditch, any ditch. Now Peter tells us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So the devil may come at us with force. He may come and try to actually either completely intimidate you or he will try to completely overcome you with brute force. He will do that. That's one of his methods. But he also comes in deception. Later on in this book, it talks about Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He's pretending to bring light while he's guiding us away from the true light. That's what it is. He's pretending to bring light while he's leading us away from the true light. That is one of his 
devices. And the extremes and excesses are one way he does that. Work is a good thing. Laziness is categorically categorically condemned in Proverbs. There is no virtue that I have found in laziness, in complacency. He that is slothful, that's the word that the Bible often uses, in his work is a brother to him that is a great waster. How an extreme in work has a ditch. Remember that old saying, all work and no play make Jack a dull boy? So a father who takes the principle that it's good for my son to work and makes him work all the time is actually doing damage to his son? Work is good, but too much work is not. But since slothfulness is an evil, the further we get away from slothfulness, the, the more closer to truth we are. Is that true? No, it's not true. In this area, you can see it. It's not true. We're, so a father who says, okay, that's slothful, so we're going to go to the other side. So no play, boy, is actually not in truth, but he's in the other ditch. He is in error. Now, the Jews did the opposite. God gave them the Sabbath. One day in seven, they were to stop their work and they were to rest. This was a consecrated holy day, one day out of seven. It was both a sign of their relationship with God and it was for their physical and spiritual well-being. You see, God made us rhythmic creatures. We're, we're, we're creatures of rhythm. There was one other word that I tried and tried and tried to get and I couldn't come up with it. But we, we, um, we're not constants. We, uh, we have different types. We eat, then we fast. We sleep, we wake. We work, we play. There's night, there's day. There's planting, there's harvest. There's rhythms in our life. That's how we, that's how God made us. See, we have we humans, well, animals too, I'm sure, have hormones that regulate things. There's a hormone to help you go to sleep. There's a hormone to help you wake up. There's a there's there's hormones to help you digest this food and that food. There are uh, adrenaline is a hormone that makes you puts you immediately in a fight or flight mode. It gives you instant energy. You know, there's stress hormones and there's pleasure hormones. Now, there's one thing true about all these hormones. You do not want any one of them all the time. If you have stress all the time, that cortisol and the high stress level, you will face problems. And I think Eldon is the one that, I don't know what for hormone was wrong in his body there, but he couldn't relax and sleep. There was something wrong. <clears throat> the whole thing about drugs is they're trying to keep that, that dopamine, that hormone 
on all the time and they get addicted to it. Cortisol and all the others. All of them are destructive when they are in excess. So we as creatures of rhythm, we are creatures of variety and order. And God, in line to our constitution, gave us a day of rest. Well, he gave, let me say, he gave the Jews a day of rest. And he gave them some directives how to keep that day of rest. This is what it means to keep this day this way. The Jews, we're talking now about the uh, Pharisees, and a lot of the Jews did it, took that healthy, holy, godly day to an extreme and made that beneficial day into a burden. It became a burden. Instead of a day of rest, it became an oppressive day. It became a day of judgment on people when they didn't do everything quite right. So just like we can take work to an extreme, so we can take the duty of rest to an extreme. We can do that in so many ways. Talking about the devil's devices. It is good to protect and shelter our children from an evil and an ungodly exposure. In fact, Parents who do not do that effectively are neglecting their duty and are really, really endangering their children. But neither is it healthy in the long run to isolate our children to extremes. It's not good to move up to some corner of a valley and only come out once every three months to renew your stash of ammunition. That is not healthy for your children. That's an extreme. But extreme lack of protection or extreme protection, neither are good. People go to extremes in their eating, in their clothing, in their finances, in their theology and ideology. They identify an heir. And their idea of truth is the further you are away from the error, the closer you are to the truth. The further we are away from working on the Sabbath, the closer we are to God's ideal. How does that play out? Jesus didn't think so. And he severely rebuked those who thought so. He said the Sabbath was made for man. It was made for the benefit of man. Man was not made to keep the Sabbath. And that was insight. That is insight. That statement right there. The Sabbath is not our duty. It is our blessing. Now, the primary reason this is a little bit going to where we're at, the primary reason we set Sunday aside as a day of rest, worship, and refreshment, uh, I'm sorry, this is primarily, the Sabbath is for our blessing, and it's primarily the reason we set Sunday aside as a day of rest and worship and refreshment. It is not a law. In a sense, it's not even a duty. But it was made for us 
for our benefit and when we view it and use it correctly, we are benefited by it. It fits our rhythmic constitution. Work, rest, and work and rest. And we, as a congregation, we give some direction of what that means collectively. We have some collective direction as how we should keep this day distinct. And we honor God and each other when we observe these directives. But one of Satan's devices is to get us into a ditch in any of these issues. And we can... If we observe, we can, if we look and observe, maybe you can observe in your own life and observe around us, we can observe that the devil is actually, this is actually one of his devices that he is pretty effective in. So, should we have authority? Or should we have everybody equal? We heard about that this morning. No, it's, it's well, I mean, it's a balance. Should we have relationship or should we have boundaries? Yes. Should we have charity? Charity with wisdom. Do you know that you can damage or even destroy a person or a people by being too generous with your money? But did you also know that if you don't help somebody at a certain time, they will die? There's a ditch on either side of giving your money. There's a ditch on either side. So the Corinthians, they did bring discipline on this man. Because of the message from Titus that they had done what was, because of the message from Titus, they had done what was right. They had pursued that man. They had confronted him about his sin. They have brought him through the process of discipline and they have brought him all the way to repentance. And maybe some of them were thinking, so if we sin by not bringing discipline on this man, let's make sure we do it right and go the whole way. Let's not be so quick to forgive him for what he did. And Satan gets an advantage here. See, going too far in a good thing is a bad thing. We can see in, uh, if you go in, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is Paul speaks about a husband and a wife to, um, who, who may for a time to refrain from intimacy for the purpose of prayer. That may be beneficial for a short time, but then Paul also tells us in order that this abstinence should not be maintained for too long of a time, lest what? Satan tempt them for their lack of self-control. See, the Catholic Church took a small portion of the truth about celibacy. There's a benefit in it. There's a place in it. And it made, well, it said, if that's, if that's beneficial 
for a small section. Well, let's make it a whole section. And they made a whole priesthood where the priests do not marry. And the result is absolutely devastating. It has not benefited. It does not benefit God. It does not benefit God's people. It does not benefit the world or the testimony or anybody to take a truth to an extreme. It's damaging. It is horrible in some cases. The devil had a heyday with that one. But Paul said, praise God, he said, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We know how he works. And so there's, there's, you could have made a whole message on Satan's devices, but I just chose to narrow down or zero in on this one in this context. And I will end here with the message. It's, it is, I want to encourage us in the end here as we think, is it, I am not, let us be zealous. Let us be wholeheartedly zealous. Um, well, I hadn't thought it through till now. I'm assuming you can be overly zealous in certain times and in certain things as well. But let us be zealous. Let us be entirely dedicated to God. Let us together seek to glorify him and work for the increase of his kingdom. And let's do it with our whole heart. But let's be aware of the devil's devices and his schemes because he will take, he will take our strength and on the weak side of our strength, he will come in with his devices. And so there's the conscientious person who says, here's an error. I'm going to go away from it. That is a good strength. That's submission to God. That's a desire to serve God. But the devil uses that and brings him to another ditch. And that's one of his devices that we need to be aware of and avoid. So why don't we just, I don't know if you can kneel for prayer. Let's kneel for prayer at the end. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us and instructing us and making it um, making it in such a way, Lord, that we can understand that the people back then faced the very same things that we face today. Lord, I pray you take us take this lesson about the devices of the devil and then give us wisdom and with one another, Lord, with each other, with the balance of the brotherhood, with the balance of the church, to help us and guide us into the way of truth, in the way, Lord, that... Uh, that uh, avoids the devil's devices and his clutches and stays in the middle road, walks in a way that is honoring to you and is productive and is effective and brings glory to your name. So I pray you speak to each one of us, Lord. There are areas in each one of us, Lord, where we may be responding or reacting in such a way. And I pray you speak to my heart and speak to each one of us. And then we thank you and pray, Lord, you be with us.
as we continue serving you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.